On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the April 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My guest is Dr. Gerard Kreiner, professor and chair of the Department of Thoracic Medicine and Surgery at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He'll be joining us to discuss and review the new American College of Chest Physicians and Canadian Thoracic Society guideline, Prevention of Acute Exacerbations of COPD. Jerry, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kyle. So let's get started by um, setting the stage for our listeners. Why do we need these guidelines? What was the need that was that was you know kind of outlined as a you know a gap that we needed to have a, a set of guidelines? Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, COPD, as you know, is a very common, important, morbid, mortal disease. So um, all of us really are faced with treating ICU patients who have COPD and outpatients and inpatients. So. It's definitely an important uh, disease that affects our patients, and it's something that's very common for people at academic centers as well as in, in the community to, to treat. There are many guidelines, as you know, that address respiratory problems, and COPD is no exception to that. And although COPD exacerbations and their prevention are mentioned in the current guidelines, there are no guidelines that are specifically focused on the prevention of exacerbations. And that's what the leadership both of the American College of Chest Physicians or CHESS and the Canadian Thoracic Society had identified. And they both worked jointly together to create a document that would be useful both clinically to provide a state-of-the-art of what we know about the prevention of COPD exacerbations and pretty much indicate what are our gaps or knowledge so that we can focus on future research to try to address those deficiencies. And are these guidelines, you know, I think you just obviously stated it in the sense that this was viewed as there was a deficiency in, a, in an area, but are we supposed to review these as replacing any guidelines or as an add-on to sort of our current thought process on how to manage these diseases? More of the latter. I mean, uh, it's not surplanting anything because there hadn't been anything that really talked about prevention. But this is pretty much a current kind of like what we can take from the body of literature that we know on how to prevent exacerbation. So it's an add-on. I was struck by, you know, during the, the introduction, I mean, to the, entire, to the entire document and obviously kind of laying the groundwork for the scope of the disease. One of the things that was that you know sort of sort of stuck out in, in, in the, all the various statistics was the fact that COPD hospitalizations are, are rising, and you know that it's always one of those troubling statistics because it you know intuitively I kind of thought we were getting better at this disease. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the more recent data, I mean, it has been a problem with hospitalizations for COPD have been increasing over the last several decades. The more recent analysis shows it might be. Um, stemming the tide somewhat, and there might be somewhat of a decline. But, um, you know, the number of people that are uh, identified with the disease, uh, that women now are uh, much more commonly affected in minorities than what is appreciated before, and that it's not only a common cause for hospitalization, it's the third most common cause for rehospitalization, hospitalization um, are the things that really uh, – grab our attention and really a call to us to better address how to take care of these patients, not only treating the acute event, but prevent future events from occurring. So the document's obviously uh, large and very uh, encompassing in, in, in its recommendations and thoughts. What Give us the highlights, I guess. Start with what are some of the key points, and then after that, at some point, I want to have you 
um, I guess, highlight what you think the average reader may find the most surprising, you know, in the sense of we all come into this with some amount of probably preconceived notions as to what would work or not work or how good and how well something would work. Um, and then you look at the guidelines and something that you would have figured would have been a 1A is a 2B recommendation, et cetera. You know, were there any kind of, wow, this is going to be a surprise to the, to the you know, to most people? Right. So I think, the, you know, in broad strokes, uh, in the composition of the guideline committee was not only multinational, multi-societal, it was multidisciplinary. So there's not only just pulmonary physicians, but there's therapists, physical therapists, respiratory therapists that are involved behavioralists. So I think the first thing that people should take away from this is that the, the treatment and the prevention of COPD is a multidisciplinary effort. And if you look at the guidelines, they're really broken down into three general um, kind of buckets. The first one is using non-pharmacologic therapies. The second is using inhaled therapies. And the third is using oral therapies. And I think we as pulmonologists, for the most part, we focus predominantly and unfortunately, I think in some cases exclusively, on just inhaled therapies. And don't really talk about the non-pharmacologic therapies or oral therapies that may have potential benefit. So I, I think that might those two features might be things that, uh, at first glance, people may not think when they come to the document. And I hope that they'll get the sense of the breadth of different treatments and the variety of different treatments that someone can invoke on trying to prevent exacerbations and how you have to include all members of your team. And if you're creating a core group to treat COPD better, how it's really important to bring different members of the team together uh, who have different strengths in trying to address the uh, the issues that these patients face. You obviously also had methodologists involved with your uh, guidelines committee in the sense of, of the, the rigorous, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, rules that we now use to, to establish guidelines. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the methodologists were essential to make sure that the the approach that was taken to the critical review of the literature was systematic, it was consistent, and it was without bias. And both societies in the effort of this went to make sure there wasn't any hint of commercial or other other forms of biases that may be um, that might be brought to the table to make these recommendations. So the process overall was uh, pretty intense. It took us probably uh, approximately 60 to 70 percent of the time to set up the process and the structure and the review of the literature and the methodologic techniques to make sure that we were picking the, the papers and, and that would have the most um, credibility in being part of the analysis, and then about 40% to write the paper, but uh, I think that, the, or the guideline. But, you know, as you said, the methodology was instrumental to carry out a, a good guideline. So one of the key points was obvious that, as you just mentioned, that it's a multidisciplinary approach and that even the, the as essentially framed into three large buckets, which, you know, it, I, I liked that the pharmacologic management, which I agree has always been our sort of overemphasis, is, is question number two. So if you're reading it from front to back, you, you've got to at least get through all the non-farm stuff before you get to the pharmacologic stuff. What what other key points would, would uh, do you think this document then provides? There's clearly many points, but what, what would you want to draw people's attention to uh, up front? So I think one of the things are, are the things from the non-pharmacologic therapies and vaccinations. I mean, um, 
the vaccinations that we currently have, uh, we recommend them, but there's not a lot of data that show that we actually prevent exacerbations by using them right now. We doubt that further research will be done because they're used for general health, but right. other issues that are important, like pulmonary rehabilitation within a month of someone being discharged, but not being able to show that benefit more than a month after being discharged, we think that's clearly a focus of what future research should be, as well as self-management for patients and education for patients and telemedicine in patients. Although for this guideline, we can't really recommend them as therapies for those uh, areas that I just addressed. We think that they could have value, but the literature right now can't support that. And future research needs to be be geared toward that because we think they have huge potential. That's one example for non-pharmacologic therapies. In terms of pharmacologic and health therapies, there's advantage to the long-acting agents, but showing superiority of one inhaled agent over the other one, inhaled long-acting agent over the other one, is somewhat wanting from the literature. And again, that I think is another opportunity for research in the future to be able to have studies that basically are focused on the prevention of exacerbations and severe exacerbations that require urgent visit or hospitalization. And the final thing could be said for oral therapies, too. We have some oral therapies, not many oral therapies, if you look at this right now. And I think that opens up the potential of really where we have to, like, uh, focus our attention, too. So we know a lot. We've done a lot for COPD prevention in the past, but there's a lot more work that we can do in the future to make better outcomes for patients. Yeah, I wanted to expand on some of the non-farm stuff because I, I found it interesting, you know, when, when it is, one, as you stated, you know, the, the 23-valent uh, pneumococcal vaccine is clearly a, a, a established routine, if you will, in the management of patients, and yet the literature doesn't support that it has much of a role, if any, in prevention of exacerbations, which I, you know, I mean, and you even state, like, hey, it's still a good idea, but, but yeah. not for this purpose. And I just, that was one of those things that I found just surprising. You know, I, I guess I had always wrongly assumed um, that, it, you know, it had a, a good role in, in, in prevention of exacerbations. Um, you know, just I found that that component of the, of the, the guidelines, you know, the work fascinating, um, just because it sort of made me question some of the other things that I'd been making assumptions about all these years. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you actually go back and look at the literature, the things that you assume are well-proven and true, it may be beneficial. Well, it may be beneficial in decreasing exacerbations like it is in decreasing risk of infection or whatever uh, or, or pneumonia, but, you know, there really hasn't been studies right. well designed enough to prove that point. Right, so it may not be true. It may be yeah. true. It may, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just that it's somewhat of an issue of, like, well, where do we leave the clinician? What are they supposed to do? And we basically said, well, you should vaccinate, but you should know that the literature that supports that this will prevent an exacerbation, that's a hole in our knowledge right now. And then let me ask you the, the, the pulmonary rehabilitation question. So there's clearly with the grade 1C evidence uh, the notion that, you know, post a, um, a recent exacerbation within a month that it is recommended for patients to begin a pulmonary rehabilitation program. And, and there's a very strong argument then for, you know, discharge pathways and so forth to ensure kind of this multidisciplinary integration into a rehab program as well as the pharmacologic and the follow-up, et cetera. Um, do you feel, or what did the committee feel, that the greater than a month, is that more the fact that we don't have um, 
evidence in this area, that the research hasn't been done, or that it was an issue of there's so many other issues at play that far out from a discharge that the rehab benefit is potentially just being washed out? Well, you're probably right. It's probably a combination of those two, but the the first statement that, that you made is probably the most important, that the right. studies that have been done, they're small, they're not multi-center, they don't have a large enough end to really comment on the true impact of that therapy. So, you know, that that's an area that's hard to get funding for right now, and I think that that really hurts our ability. I'm hoping that with the new kind of penalties that are forcing people to do things better to decrease readmissions, that hopefully um, that will be recognized that more money needs to go in to look at these types of ther- therapies that logically we would assume would have a great impact, but they're understudied right now. Could you give some examples, maybe even using your own practice, um, when I look at recommendations like 8, 9, and 10 in regards to education, written action plans, you know, the healthcare specialist, uh, direct access and case management, all these, you, you start to obviously put together multiple working parts. And I wonder if there's a, a framework that if someone was, who's reading this or listening saying, you know, I, we don't have any of this at my center and I'm trying to build this, do you have a blueprint for me? Um, and obviously, you have a multidisciplinary department uh, that you're that you run. Um, I'm wondering, just you know, how does it work at your institution? And could you know, would you be able to willing to share some of that so that people could try to model uh, what you all are doing successfully at other institutions? Yes. Uh, well, I think one of the things that uh, is important to recognize when you deal with COPD patients and those who are hospitalized, you're talking about a patient group who's somewhat older, who's sick. Um, and who has a complex care plan. There's multiple different devices that they're using to treat themselves. Some of that's related to health therapies, but some of that's related to oxygen therapy, or some might be on non-invasive ventilation when they go home also, and you're asking them to do rehab, and then 60% of them are going to have more than one comorbid condition overall. And some of those comorbid conditions can contribute to their breathlessness, what makes them hard to be able to tell. Is it heart failure? Is it COPD or right. some other factor? So I think, or my deconditioning. Right. So I think, you know, one of the, the, the things that's important is to recognize these patients are sick, um, that the, some of them with the exacerbation and what they bring to the table might have some cognitive impairment. So it's important that this educational process isn't just like one and done there at that setting, but it's something that's going to continue when the patient leaves the hospital. So what we try to do is have patients with COPD. They're admitted to one geographic area of the hospital. They're treated by one core team of not only pulmonologists working in conjunction with hospitalists, but also with a case manager as well as with the nurse practitioners and respiratory therapists who are geared towards taking parts of the educational and the teaching of the patients uh, from devices and therapy at that point of time. And then when the patient leaves the hospital and goes home, we make sure that every patient is seen either in the outpatient setting or in the home environment by using either a community support group that we've put together or seen in the outpatient area within a week of discharge to consolidate their treatment plan because it's confusing and it's a lot for them. And then we try to make them come to an outpatient rehab center that either we keep um, have hands-on so the patient has another set of eyes that's seeing them at least twice a week in addition to the clinical care. So those are some of the things. It has nothing to do with therapy, but it pretty much has everything to do with education and coordination of care.
That's fantastic. No, I think that actually serves as a nice model um, for people to be able to to try to you know build and, and replicate. And I and I think you know it's, it strikes me that it sounds like you have a almost the equivalent of an, an open door clinic for discharge. You know, you're discharged from COP, from in house with COPD. You go to this specialized. We can see you quickly. COPD discharge clinic. Yes. yes. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so moving over to the to the pharmacologic therapies and the recommendations there, um, I was struck by the and this comes I don't think is a great surprise, but that there's clearly stronger recommendations for the long acting bronchodilating agents, whether they're LABAs or LAMAs, and then the, the the evidence for exacerbation prevention was definitely lower for the short acting agents. Yeah. In, in fact, that the you know the the longer acting agents have had some studies where they've really focus on exacerbations and COPD hospitalizations as an outcome, either primary or secondary. The short-acting agents, they really never focus on that, especially okay. hospitalizations. There's some comment on some of the studies, and there's, they record when patients were treated with steroids, and we took that as a surrogate for where they might have had an exacerbation. But the, you're right, the data drops off dramatically from the long-acting agents to the short-acting agents, whatever, if they are beta agonists or anticholinergics, it's, it, it drops off steeply. And then I was also one of the, um, could you make a comment uh, from the perspective of the recommendation or the guidelines, is there ever a role uh, for inhaled steroid monotherapy for COPD exacerbation prevention? Yeah, we, uh, we we really couldn't find that. And actually, you know, there's uh, uh, some of the group, Darcy Marcinek and Barcelli and Nick Hanania, uh, were the subcommittee that worked on this and did a great job with that part of it. But really, that we don't recommend the inhaled monotherapy, uh, steroid monotherapy by itself. It's always with the use of a longer-acting agent. Okay. And then let's talk about the... the you know, PICO-3, the, the whole area of, or area of your um, uh, guidelines in regards to uh, oral therapies. Um, expand on that for us. Yeah, so that's... Uh, that, There's more than just prednisone? There's more than just prednisone out there? <laughs> it's not a very deep bench on their PICO-3 because, uh, you know, that's an area where we need a lot more work on. I mean... Um, the, the probably the, the two the two that that rise to the top are really in the U.S. at least is uh, long-term macrolides and the use of PDE4 inhibitors. So in terms okay. of long-term macrolides, I mean, although um, the um, study was sponsored by the NHLBI COPD CRN that uh, gave 250 milligrams of zithromycin a day or um, placebo, matching placebo showed a clear-cut 28 to 29% reduction in exacerbation in terms of prevent, preventative effect. Um, the concern is, was the, what does that do to the long-term effects of therapy with an antibiotic on colonization, only to the individual patient, but to the community at large, and then right. the concern of macrolides on uh, QTC. Right. So that was the enthusiasm for treatment was tempered by potential side effects for the individual patient and the surrounding population. Um, in terms of the PDE4 inhibitors, I mean, that benefit is to a select group of the ones that have a chronic bronchitic phenotype. So um, it doesn't really satisfy the population at large either. So we have real gaps in, in therapy for what we could do with oral agents that we could use to a patient population at large. And then the use of N-acetylcysteine and carbocysteine are really therapies that are inconsistently been shown to be beneficial or 
respectively only available in non-U.S. Um, countries. And since this is a global document, uh, we commented on some therapies that may not be available in North America for people that might be using these guidelines overseas. So, uh, you know, we're pretty limited in the therapies that we really have for oral agents that are um, ones that are broadly based. The one most commonly is, you know, is systemic steroids. And, uh, you know, there's literature that it may be beneficial in terms of decreasing um, recurrence of an exacerbation in the first 30 days, but longer than that, we have um, we have um, no data that shows that it would be beneficial. And then I think the most clear-cut therapy that we have a definitive answer, and this is kind of like some conflict of interest since I was a PI for the uh, the Stackhope study that looked at simvastatin versus placebo for prevention of exacerbations for the NHLBI consortium. Um, that clearly has no benefit. Right. Well, it can't be much of a conflict if it's if the recommendations are against it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. There's no benefit. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That does, I mean, you know, going through, that that does, I think we hit on all of the, the key highlights. I mean, there's clearly other details, and, and without a doubt, our listeners should should read through these guidelines to get the, the key points. What what am I missing? What haven't we talked about that that uh, you know that I've overlooked that we should be making sure people are aware of? I think you did a good job of it. I think that uh, just to bring it back full circle that we talked about in the beginning. I, I mean, there's a, a number of things that we can address that we think with the current therapy that we can prevent exacerbations. We think it's just don't think of medications, especially in health medications. Think more broadly. Think of things that we can do from a non-pharmacologic standpoint. And I think for the group that are investigators, that there is a lot more that we need to do. Excellent. That's a perfect closing statement. <laughs> you want to add anything else? <laughs> no, I'm good. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. No, this is perfect. I really appreciate it, and I know our I know our listeners will too. And and the you know the guidelines are obviously available and and uh, should be downloaded um, and and read. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much for your time. Okay, Kyle. Have a good day. Thank you. All very right, much. you. Bye bye. Bye.